Chapter Eight of the Reign of George the Sixth, nineteen hundred to nineteen twenty-five, a forecast written in the year seventeen sixty-three. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight, A.D. nineteen twenty, naval victories over the Russians, Duke of Lerma marches into France, motions of the British and French armies, celebrated march to Saint Flour, Philip arrives at Paris. Battle of Espalion, Battle of Paris, The Conquest of France, Conquest of Mexico, Philippine Islands Reduced, Duke of Devonshire enters Spain, General Peace signed at Paris, November the 1st, 1920. The enterprising disposition of George would not suffer him to defer opening the campaign the moment he was able. In the beginning of April, footnote, 1920, end footnote, the Duke of Grafton sailed from Hull with sixty ships of the line and thirty-five frigates to the mouth of the Baltic. He soon learned that the Russian fleet was not even collected. Thirty sail of the line were anchored off Stockholm in expectation of being joined by twenty more from Petersburg, when they were ready to rendezvous at Copenhagen, where twenty sail were ready for the sea. Footnote. This reads very like the state of affairs in the Baltic in 1801 when Nelson made his great stroke to keep apart the squadrons isolated at Stockholm, Kronstadt, and Copenhagen. In footnote. The Duke no sooner gained this intelligence than he immediately entered the Baltic, and steering towards Stockholm designed to fall on the Russian fleet before they had advice of his approach. He executed his scheme with all imaginable success. In a dark night he sent in six fire-ships among their squadron. The effect was terrible and fatal to the enemy. Eleven ships of the line were burnt, and seven frigates, four sunk and seven taken. The rest were greatly damaged and totally dispersed. This decisive blow, which at once disabled the enemy from appearing at sea during the war, was a thunderbolt to Peter, who was then with his army overrunning Denmark, which had rebelled against him. However, rather to make a parade of power than in hopes of retrieving the misfortune, he gave orders that the loss should be instantly repaired, and all endeavors seemed to be directed to raising his navy. But it was in vain. The Duke of Grafton, following his blow, sailed to Petersburg. He bombarded the city three days to the other ruin of everything but the fortifications, and by a bold and well-conducted attempt he landed three thousand men to attack the fort that defended the basin. It was carried in a moment and this glorious expedition ended with burning the whole Russian fleet of twenty sail, after a defense, indeed, which did great honor to the enemy's courage. After two such decisive strokes, the presence of the Duke was no longer necessary in the Baltic. He left it, and setting sail for England, anchored at Hull with his victorious fleet. The King, with his own hand, wrote a most friendly letter to the Duke, thanking him for his great and eminent services, particularly in this signal success. He soon after ordered him to sail for the coast of Spain, and gave him orders to annoy the enemy in whatever manner should seem best to himself. He was limited only to the coast of that kingdom. His Majesty, before he left England, gave orders for a fleet of ten sail of the line and eight frigates, to sail for the West Indies to prosecute the war in that part of the world. They were to convoy transports, with three thousand infantry on board, who were designed to attack Mexico under General Cannon. These were to land at New Orleans. Footnote. An odd place to choose for landing to attack Mexico. 
but our author's geography is not at its best in America. End footnote. The fleet was commanded by Admiral Newport. Another squadron was ordered to be got ready with all expedition for the East Indies to attack the Spanish possessions in that quarter under Admiral Clinton. The preparations of the king had been prodigious, yet ships were still wanting and were fitting out every day. It was indeed surprising how this active monarch could give his attention equally to every object of such a prodigious extensive war. Before the Duke of Grafton had destroyed the Russian fleet, George was landed in France. He carried with him eight regiments of foot and three of dragoons, which had been but lately raised. He found the Duke of Devonshire drawing his troops out of their winter quarters and collected them near Nevers. This business the king hastened with all expedition, for he designed to take the field before the Spanish army under the Duke of Lerma had joined Philip. It consisted of fifty thousand men and was in full march for France. Philip himself had spared no pains to augment his troops. He had thrown strong garrisons into all his fortresses, and his army designed for the field amounted to seventy thousand men, which he was collecting with all expedition. The King of England, by the latter end of April, found himself at the head of sixty thousand conquering troops. He had besides twenty thousand in garrisons, twenty thousand in Flanders under Summers, and five thousand in camp near Santez, commanded by General Young, who watched ten thousand of Philip's troops that had been detached to penetrate into Orleanois, but without effect. Dijon, Mecon, and Bourg were now the only places in Burgundy in the possession of the French. George detached ten thousand men under General Cleveland to reduce those fortresses, which it was expected would prove an easy task, as the two first were cut off from all communication with Philip's army. After performing this service, he was to join the king in the neighborhood of Lyon. His Majesty on the 3rd of May left Nevers, and marched to Moulin. The governor, Du Roquet, deserted it at his approach. The king, leaving a garrison in it, directed his march to Bourbon, with the design to reduce all the places on the Loire, and joining General Cleveland lay siege to Lyon, which he made no doubt would draw Philip to a battle, as the loss of that city would be fatal to his affairs. Footnote. Duchamp, tome six, page forty-seven, in footnote. This excellent plan showed the genius of the king, and the execution was equal to the design. By a happy expedition which always threw his enemy into confusion, George became master of Dijon, Semur, Boisset, and a strong fort which commanded an important pass at Tarare, which opened him the road to Lyon. General Cleveland had met with equal success in his expedition. Philip detached two thousand men to oppose him, but the English general, by making a flying march, deceived him, and conquered the three towns almost as soon as he had attacked them. Footnote. Dijon, Macon, and Bourg. End footnote. Having thus performed the chief end of his expedition, he marched to join his master with little or no opposition, and effected it with as little loss. The French were but spectators of their enemy's success. The King of France, who was guided in all his military operations by Marshal Saleta, was terrified at the sudden approach of his victorious enemy. The Duke of Lerma had not yet entered France. He was perplexed what course to take. Determined not to hazard a battle, he was in great fear of the King's attacking Lyon. There was in that city a garrison of eight thousand men, yet he depended but little on their defence. If he encamped under its walls, he knew it would be safe, 
but then it would be in George's power to cut off his junction with the Spanish army. On the contrary, if he marched towards Spain to join it, Leon he gave up his lost, and perhaps other places of great importance might partake its fate. Thus confused between different opinions, he at last was guided by his general, who urged him to entrench himself strongly under the walls of Leon, as George, he supposed, through his impetuosity, would aim at taking him and his army prisoners, and would neglect to cut off his communication with Spain. George, whose camp was near Boissy, immediately perceived the oversight of the enemy. He took no time to spend in tedious consideration, but seeing that the whole fortune of the war depended on his preventing the junction of the French and Spaniards, he determined to exert every effort to cut off all their communications. There was the greater necessity for expedition, as the Duke of Lerma had entered France, and was arriving at Foix. Footnote. An unlikely point for him to appear at is it would seem that he must have crossed the Pyrenees at one of their least accessible points in order to reach it. He would really have marched by Figueras and Perpignan. In footnote. The scheme was difficult to execute, for all the country before him was full of strong towns with garrisons in them. His plan was to march to Saint-Fleur, but Riom, Clermont, and Issois lay so near his road that it would be extremely difficult to pass without reducing them. Without losing a moment's time, therefore, he made a flying march to Riom, and presenting himself before it, required the governor to surrender immediately at discretion. Terrified at George's approach, he surrendered without firing a gun, but his cowardice, however, cost him dear, for he was afterwards shot for his behavior by the command of his master. George, having thrown a garrison into Riom, marched with no less expedition to Clermont, and expecting the same speedy success. But the prince of that name, being lord of the town, commanded in it, and returned a haughty answer to George. His majesty immediately surrounded the town, and at night about ten o'clock made three violent attacks on it in different quarters. Never was action more obstinately fought, but some scaling ladders breaking at the principal attack, and the bravery of the French throwing his men into confusion, he was obliged to draw off his troops with the loss of two thousand five hundred men. The king, who expected that Philip would march with all expedition to join the Spanish army in time, resolved to lose none, and quitting the attack on Clermont, determined, as Riom was in his possession, to pass on without it. His Majesty, using the same expedition, advanced to Issois, which to his utter astonishment he found deserted. Pursuing his march, therefore, he arrived at Saint-Fleur, and was hardly in sight of the town before he ordered it to be attacked. The fury of this attack, which was made at once in five places, only seemed to raise the courage of the governor. But nothing could resist the English. After four hours' hot action they carried it by storm. This celebrated march, which was one of the most expeditious ever known, was performed in eight days a rapidity that was astonishing. The king, by such prodigious celerity, however, prevented the two armies of French and Spaniards from joining. He expected, indeed, that Philip would take a different course as fast as possible to effect the junction, but herein he was mistaken. Philip, or rather Saletta, no sooner saw how far George had got the start of him than he perceived the extreme difficulty of joining the Spaniards and knowing that the operation of the whole campaign must be greatly retarded by waiting for the Duke of Lerma, he determined to make a resolute push to recover the capital in the northern provinces of his kingdom. 
the attempt must necessarily be attended with great difficulty, but he was nevertheless determined in his resolution. Had it been possible, he would have taken the straight road to Paris. But the English possessed a multitude of garrisons in his way that rendered such a march impracticable. Therefore, breaking up his camp with very little noise, he took the route of Bourg, designing to make a great detour through French Comte and Champagne. Bourg surrendered without a blow. From thence he marched with great expedition to Dolay. His plan in this march was the same as that of George in his southern one. He determined to leave every town behind him that made any great resistance. The governor of Dolay refused to surrender, and Philip, despairing of taking it by storm, passed on to Langres. The officer who commanded there had not the same courage, but left the town an easy conquest to the French. Cezanne gave him as little trouble, from whence, after a very rapid march, he arrived at Paris, which was never able to resist an army. May twenty ninth, nineteen twenty. Nothing could raise the spirits of his subjects more than this stroke. He expected to be soon master of all the northern provinces, as he depended on the Duke of Lerma's finding the King of England employment in the south. But we shall leave him here a little while to take a view of the operations between George and the Spaniards. The Duke had advanced to Toulouse, and hearing that Philip was marching to Paris, he exclaimed against this perfidy of the French in the highest terms. He reproached them with breaking their engagements as they were to join him and to act in concert with his army. The Spanish minister was no less loud in his complaints, but it was too late for Philip to change his plan, and the Duke with all possible caution advanced to Toulouse. He knew the genius of the man that commanded against him, and was determined to leave nothing to fortune to hazard no action of consequence but to keep advancing and find the king of England an employment, while Philip was overrunning the northern provinces. His plan was the most prudent he could have chosen, and he had a genius proper to execute it. When he arrived at that city he learned of George's being at Mende, upon which he still advanced to Albi and Rodet, and from the situation of the king was in hopes of being able to make a flying march and yet join Philip. But the King of Great Britain knew it was impossible for the Duke to take advantage of his motion, from the situation of his outposts, the passes of which were all in his command. Lerma was at Espalion, and just as his army was beginning to move, one of his aides-de-camp brought him intelligence that the King was at Albrock in his front, but four miles from him. Alarmed at this news and dreading a battle, he instantly ordered his troops to arms and they moved forthwith into their camp, at the same time receiving orders to raise new entrenchments and redoubts. The king had made this sudden and rapid motion with a design to bring on a battle, judging it a favourable opportunity when the Spaniards were on the march. However, finding that the duke was taking every precaution that was possible, he gave over the design, and the two armies continued in the same position a week, during which time George was incessantly attacking the out-parties and convoys of the duke, and trying to provoke him to a battle. But it was in vain, for the cautious Spaniard kept close in his camp, and very quietly saw the king victorious in every skirmish. But this petit guerre was the king's aversion, though he understood it well. He loved hazardous actions in which fortune played a part. He was tired if a continued series of battles, rapid marches, or town storm did not succeed quickly to each other never more pleased or more calm than in the midst of all. As may be supposed, this disposition made him long for an engagement with the Spaniards, and form a variety of projects to bring one about, but knowing the prudent enemy he had to deal with, he determined to surprise him by night, 
Previous to the execution of his project, he had detached parties to secure all the country round him. The Earl of Berry, with twenty thousand men, had taken Orlac, Figeac, Cahors, and Villefranche, so that all the country behind him was secure, and the enemy possessed the route by which they advanced. Having prepared everything by calling in all his detachments the better to deceive the Duke, he gave out that he should march immediately to succour Rouen, which was besieged by the French king. He accordingly provided a vast quantity of baggage, ammunition, and artillery wagons, pressed all the horses of the country into his service, and in short gave directions in such a manner that every one fully believed he was on the point of departing. When the day came on which he meditated the attack, the 23rd of June, the troops were all directed to wait for orders, and it was expected that the next morning they would begin their march. But about ten o'clock they were all drawn up in order of battle and George, dividing them into two bodies, placed one under the command of the Duke of Devonshire, and headed the other himself. The Duke was to make a little detour of a mile and a half through some woods which led to the Spanish camp, while the King himself took the same direction through the plain. Both parties were to meet and make the attack in concert. Nothing could be executed in a better order. The troops, to their great surprise, filed off without the beat of drum or sound of trumpet, and by half an hour after eleven arrived at the very verge of the enemy's camp. The king, joining his forces and giving orders to the duke, the Earl of Berry, and General Young, who were to command the three attacks, while himself overlooked all at the head of a chosen body of troops, directed them to advance, with orders not to fire a musket till they were in the midst of the camp. The three divisions moved at the same instant, and had advanced a considerable way into the camp before they were discovered, the Spaniards being all asleep in their tents. A grenadier attempted to knock down a sentinel, was resisted, whereupon he fired at him, and the noise immediately aroused some contiguous tents, who upon this spread a general alarm and ran half-naked to their arms, but found the English advancing to the very centre of their camp. They attempted to resist, but were broken dispersed in an instant. The Duke of Lerma himself by this time was at the head of a confused party, and attempting to form them. But five-and-twenty field-pieces which the king had brought with him were placed so advantageously that every attempt of such a nature was ineffectual. The duke flew like lightning through his camp to bring his men to some order. All the Spanish generals exerted themselves, but their stand was momentary. Terror stalked before the English wherever they moved. Nothing could resist the impetuosity of their attacks. All was one scene of horror and confusion. The enemy was everywhere dispersed in the utmost disorder about their camp, and cut to pieces in regiments. To complete the carnage, the Earl of Berry, turning the cannon of three redoubts on the flying troops, mowed them down in squadrons. By break of day the action was over. The whole Spanish army was totally dispersed with incredible slaughter, and the loss of their general, who was killed in the confusion that necessarily attended such an action. Never was victory more complete. Twenty-two thousand Spaniards were killed and ten thousand made prisoners. All their camp baggage and artillery, standards, colors, drums, and other trophies without number were taken, besides their military chest. They suffered great loss in their retreat, so that out of fifty thousand who came out, scarce ten thousand returned to their own country. This decisive victory was a fatal stroke to Spain, and almost ruined Philip's affairs. The news of it was as a thunderbolt to him. After gaining so great a victory in such advantageous circumstances, and with the most trifling loss, 
there was nothing to stop the rapidity of the king's conquests. He divided his army into three divisions, and all Languedoc, Provence, Dauphiné, Gascon, Guienne, Quercy, Perigord, Limousine, and Saintonge were conquered, comprehending near four hundred miles of territory. But it is time to take a view of Philip's operations which will exhibit a very different picture. He was no sooner master of Paris than he marched into Normandy and laid siege to Rouen, expecting to be master of it in a few days, but his hopes of such speedy success were blasted, for he found the brave governor, General Stanley, returned a haughty answer to his demand of surrendering. But as it was absolutely necessary that the city should be taken before he attempted anything farther, and as no time was to be lost, he opened nine batteries against it at once, in expectation of obliging the governor to surrender by the fury of his fire. But after a week's dreadful cannonade he was not nearer his point than when he first began the attack. With much vexation he was at last obliged to open the trenches, and a slow siege could not but be fatal to his affairs. Yet he trusted to the Duke of Lerma's keeping George engaged till he was master of it. In this situation he continued his approaches for some time, but saw little prospect of his being able to carry the city. At last advice was brought that the King of England had totally defeated the Spaniards, a terrible blow to Philip. He was at first struck dumb with surprise, but recovering himself ordered the siege to be raised immediately, and falling back to Paris entrenched his army under the walls of his capital. Every day brought him accounts of whole provinces overrun by George, and seeing that his affairs were on the brink of ruin, he determined to sue for peace, and accordingly sent two ambassadors to the British monarch. But he was answered that it was now too late for a peace, that France had been the aggressor in the war, and that he must expect no other terms but those his sword procured him. His Majesty quickly followed this answer with all his forces. He left Rodet in the beginning of July, and moved with great expedition towards Paris. Footnote. The Battle of Espalion was fought on June 23rd. The King moved on Paris about July the 5th. How did he find time in ten days to conquer Provence, Languedoc, and the other remote provinces? The chronology needs recasting. End footnote. In fifteen days he reached its neighborhood, and encamping at Dampierre, went immediately to reconnoitre Philip's entrenchments. Saletta had done everything in his power to make them as strong as possible, but their extent rendered them weak, although they contained eighty thousand men entrenched to the teeth. George, drawing nearer, determined to attack them without delay. He pointed out three places to his generals at which to make the principal efforts. At one he commanded himself, and the Duke of Devonshire and the Earl of Berry the other two. The prodigious boldness of the attempt made some advise the king against it, but his ardent temper made him reject their opinion. It was expected that this action would be one of the bloodiest ever fought. The king made the attack at three o'clock in the morning of the 24th of July, but it could hardly be called a battle. In half an hour the whole French army gave way. Dispirited by so many defeats and engaging in expectation of being conquered, instead of fighting like men they fled like sheep. Philip, with the Dauphin, his brother on one side of him and Saletta on the other, attempted to rally his men. But it was impossible, and in the flight he was taken prisoner by the Earl of Berry, to whom he delivered his sword. The Dauphin was also taken, and Marshal Saletta. 
the loss of the French amounted to about 15,000 men in killed and prisoners, and the whole army was totally dispersed. This victory threw the whole kingdom of France into George's possession. He had now no long marches to make, his enemy had no resource. All was lost. From the frontiers of Spain to the extremities of Holland the whole territory was in his hands. The king of Spain, or rather his haughty minister, was seized with terror. They repented having provoked a prince, whom they were in fear would take a severe revenge. All Europe trembled at the name of George, and it was next to evident that he was now become invincible. But the same success attended his arms in the remotest corners of the world. We before mentioned the Duke of Grafton sailing with his victorious fleet to the coast of Spain. His grace's actions on that station were not so brilliant as those in the Baltic, but almost equally ruinous to the Spaniards. Too weak to face the English squadron, the Spanish fleet kept in port. Thirty sail of the line besides frigates and other ships were at anchor in the harbor of Cadiz. The Duke, finding there was no probability of the enemy's venturing out, formed the design of attacking the forts of the city, and burning the Spanish fleet. There was a vastness in all this nobleman's schemes that showed a great and daring genius. During the reign of George III, admirals watched the fleets of their enemies and spent whole months ineffectually, and yet that was a brilliant period. But now in the age of George VI, the British admirals did not watch, but forced the ports of their enemies. The Duke executed his plan with great success. With the loss of only one ship, he burnt nine sail of the line, fifteen frigates, and sixty-four merchantmen. He then entered the Straits, and falling in with a small Spanish squadron, took from Alicant to Gibraltar, to take in their guns, he took four sail of the line and three frigates, dispersing the rest. Footnote. Gibraltar then was no longer in British hands, but a Spanish arsenal. Presumably it had been lost during the unfortunate wars of George V. In footnote. In the West Indies, Admiral Newport met with yet greater successes. Having landed General Cannon and his men at New Orleans, he sailed to the island of Cuba, and without any assistance reduced it. That immense island once more came under the dominion of Great Britain, and with it a prodigious sugar trade. Footnote. Havana had been in our hands in 1762 at the end of the Seven Years' War, but was surrendered at the peace of 1763. End footnote. The general, having collected the troops of the colony of Louisiana to the amount of 15,000 men, began a very long march toward Mexico. Footnote. An incredible way of invading Mexico. Any invader with possession of the sea would have landed at Vera Cruz, as did the Americans in 1846. In footnote. But as the country through which he proceeded was tolerably well cultivated and having the advantage of conveying his artillery, etc., by several noble rivers, he soon entered the Spanish colonies. Footnote. It is difficult to see how the Rio Grande or any other stream would thus help a force marching on Mexico. All the great rivers run across, not parallel to the invader's road. In footnote. Where the weakness of their government was very visible, he met with no resistance, but proceeding on his march, arrived at the opulent city of Mexico. It surrendered on the first summons, and in three months he conquered the whole country, together with the Isthmus, across from La Vera Cruz to Acapulco. Nothing could be more fatal to the Spaniards than the loss of these immense regions. The trade of them was a great and valuable increase to that of Great Britain. 
but these operations were performed in concert with another in the East Indies. The end of Admiral Clinton's expedition was the conquest of the Philippine Islands. This fleet, being rendezvoused at Batavia, was joined by fifteen sail of the line of the company's ships, and ten thousand of their land forces. Footnote. The East India Company, then, was still in full existence in 1920, and Batavia was English. Presumably we had taken the Dutch East Indies when the French conquered Holland, in footnote. They proceeded immediately for the object of their enterprise. So great a force in that part of the world could meet with little or no resistance. Manila was taken after an attack of two hours, and all the islands were successively reduced to obedience. The government of them His Majesty entrusted to the company. The accession of wealth was immense, since these vast conquests concurred to command a vast and open trade, which was carried on almost immediately from Acapulco to Manila. In short, all the riches of the Spaniards, or their most valuable riches, their trade, for the mines of Mexico were exhausted long before, fell into the hands of the English. But events were happening in Europe which drew the attention of all the world. Footnote. In 1898 they still gave 70% of Mexico's total exports. In footnote. The King of Great Britain, no longer seeing an enemy in the field, entered Paris with great pomp and placed his headquarters in the Louvre. He sent the Duke of Devonshire at the head of 40,000 men to attack Spain and distributed 30,000 more in garrisons throughout France. The remainder of his army, which amounted to 32,000, was part encamped in the neighborhood of Paris and part distributed in that city. He had besides 20,000 more in Holland under General Summers. He left this army in the same position on account of the neighborhood of the Russians. The Tsar Peter was yet engaged in a skirmishing tedious war with small parties of the Danes, whom he found it impossible to quell at once. Besides, he could use but a small part of his power, for he was at war with the Turks, and finding so much business on his hands, he was utterly unable to attack George. The Duke of Devonshire had no sooner passed the Apennines, footnote, a curious slip for the Pyrenees, in footnote, than he broke into Catalonia, and overrunning the whole province, sat down before Barcelona. All Spain was alarmed. Terrified at the attack, the haughty minister himself saw the immediate necessity of appeasing George. He sent ambassadors to Paris to sue for peace, who met with no very favorable reception. They made many proposals which the king rejected. At last George, in a memorial, informed their court that he would make peace on no other terms than the following. 1. That the King of Spain shall cede all the conquests of the English in the East and West Indies to Great Britain as an indemnification for the expenses of the war. Footnote. This would leave Spain South America, but no other part of her colonial empire. In footnote. 2. That the King of Spain shall acknowledge the King of Great Britain as King of France. 3. That the King of Great Britain shall relinquish his conquests in Catalonia in consideration of the King of Spain ceding the island of Sardinia to Philip of France, which he shall enjoy forever with the title of King. Footnote. How and when Sardinia had become Spanish we cannot tell, presumably when the Sicilians overran Italy. In footnote. For some time the court of Madrid refused to accede to these conditions, but finding the king's determination fixed and Barcelona in the Duke of Devonshire's possession, and dreading to see George at the head of his army in Spain, they at last agreed to them. The Tsar Peter and Philip were both invited to accede to the treaty, and the latter had his liberty promised him, and the island of Sardinia if he did. 
The difference that subsisted between Great Britain and Russia did not prove the least obstacle, and Philip, tired out with ill fortune, and seeing the impossibility of recovering either his kingdom or his liberty, agreed to the conditions prescribed by George. An English fleet wafted him, his brother, and many of the French nobility to the island of Sardinia, which he took possession of. The King of Great Britain generously made him a present of fifty thousand pounds to settle his court, and treated him during his captivity with all the politeness imaginable. The peace was no sooner signed than it was proclaimed at London and Paris, and His Majesty was crowned King of France at Rheims, the 16th of November, 1920, before an immense concourse of British and French nobility, etc. After leaving the Duke of Devonshire to command in that kingdom, in December he embarked at Calais, and arrived in England. End of chapter 10 Recording by Philip Gould